This is Mark Lieberman, the host of The World According to Mark. And today we're interviewing somebody who I've interviewed several times in the past, Julie Mayfield. Thank you, Julie, for agreeing to be on the show yet again. And uh, Julie is a member of the North Carolina State Senate representing District 49, which includes Asheville, North Carolina. And she assumed her office in January of 2021. And her current term goes through uh, the end of uh, 2024. And she had a, a very interesting career before becoming a member of the legislature. And specifically, she had a lot of particular interests and passions and responsibilities on issues that are still pretty fundamental and key in the legislature, including environmental and healthcare and so on. Um, she has experience as having been the vice president and general counsel of the Georgia Conservancy. And she is now a senior policy advisor with a nonprofit called Mountain True, which advocates and does things to help the environment. And, yep. to, and to stem and to stem the tide of global warming, uh, and I think we're going to solve that problem with AI. But in any event, <laughs> <laughs> without further ado, I wanted to have Julie on the show today because there are a number of matters that have been um, pending, passed, discussed, debated in the North Carolina state legislature. There has been some interesting. Um, things that have happened, some of which are troubling to a lot of folk. Uh, for one thing, before we uh, I let Julie talk, is <clears throat> there had been a um, majority of Republicans uh, in, in both houses, um, but <clears throat> one of the persons who had been elected as a Democrat, I believe in the House, uh, decided to switch parties, <clears throat> to switch parties very close to um, legislation that was ultimately passed that restricts the availability of abortion in North Carolina. And her vote was crucial um, to that decision, much to the concern and chagrin of the um, Democratic members, among others, and much to the um, delight, I suppose, with the Republicans who were uh, sponsoring and pushing that legislation. Um, but beyond that, <clears throat> North Carolina seems to be featured in the news a lot, not just in this region or statewide, but perhaps either as a follower or a bellwether of a lot of current trends that are mm -hmm. sweeping across the country. And particularly in those states, <clears throat> which similar to North Carolina, either have a Democratic or Republican governor, but in many cases have a majority or a supermajority of Republicans. And that tends to allow one state to try its hand at passing some controversial legislation, which then <clears throat> is at least um, a model, potentially even a template for legislation in other states, including North Carolina. So with that long introduction, <clears throat> let me um, 
have Julie talk to us about what's been going on and what um, she sees down the road as far as North Carolina is concerned. And again, that, that may have an impact on other states so of interest to other folks uh, who are hearing this broadcast. Yeah, well, thank you, Mark. It's always good to be with you. Um, I always enjoy, enjoy our times together. Um, so as, as you said, um, I, I think you're completely accurate in that North Carolina is, I would say we're more following rather than leading uh, uh, in some of these policy areas. Um, but the fact that the Republicans have a supermajority in the legislature in both houses now, um, in both chambers, uh, means that they can run all of the legislation that they tried to run the last four years that Governor Cooper vetoed. Um, over the last four years, the governor vetoed, I think, upwards of 50 bills, and uh, a number of those are are coming back through, and it's on everything from guns to abortion to uh, LGBTQ rights, um, voting uh, rights, uh, you know, all of the all of the hot button issues, and we're seeing it all. And, um, you know, several things have already, several of those controversial things have already become law over his, uh, over his veto. And the, the two most notable are, um, are the two that we've seen are the abortion bill that you mentioned and uh, a rollback in gun um gun regulation, uh, removing the state level background check uh, that was required up until um, just a few weeks ago. So, yeah, so there's, it's, this, this session has been a very different experience. Um, you know, in, in last session, my first session, uh, a lot of these bills were passed, but of course we knew the governor would veto them and we knew that we could sustain that veto. And um, now it's just very different to see these bills moving through um, knowing that we can't we can't stop them, all we can do is um, speak our piece and um, try to let people know the people of North Carolina know um, what what the Republican Party is doing, which in most of these cases is not actually what most people want. And I guess um, this is my comment, and you can agree or disagree. Is it seems as if a lot of the more hot button controversial issues are the ones where the votes are polarized, which is, I, I guess, maybe even not the correct word, that the votes that come in, <clears throat> um, are, are, you can predetermine them, but just based upon the, the particular party that the representative has, which is, again, for, for, to me, for a number of years, I felt that that's the most troubling. I mean, gerrymandering, which we might get around to talking about, and legislative minorities and majorities might not be so bad if um, the membership of the legislature didn't feel inclined to vote a sort of a straight party ticket on virtually everything that comes across. So, and, and, I, and I agree. Let me just interrupt you for one second, though. Sure. Um, so we... We do. So that is absolutely true when it comes to Republicans. You um, I don't know that we've seen Republicans cross the cross the aisle, so to speak, on any of we have not on any of these issues, even though some of them are in incredibly close districts. Um, some of our um, 
senators who are in closed districts and some of our Democratic representatives do, in fact, vote with the Republicans on some things. And that's fine. We understand that they're in they're in very tight districts. They have you know, their their districts are close to 50 50. And it's not some of some of these issues now, not any of these really hot button issues. Um, but there are a lot of things we do that are, in fact, most of the things we do are not those hot button issues, but they're still really important and they still make a big difference uh, in the lives of people in North Carolina. And our Democrats have the freedom to vote the way that they need to vote to represent their constituents. Um, the Republicans uh, don't either don't seem to have that freedom or they don't exercise it if they have it. Well, to your point, and I, I, I certainly uh, understand what you're saying and agree, uh, those Democrats that might not vote straight party, so to speak, on any particular legislation, as you've indicated, they're acting, I mean, they are representatives, they're supposed to vote in accordance with what they think the people in their district would want a lot of the time, although some of the time you would hope that they would expect or that they would act like um, states people, state persons, statesmen, whatever the, whatever the right word is, <laughs> because they believe that it's the right thing, even if it might be um, controversial and go the other way. So the, <clears throat> as you said, to your point and also to my point, it still ends up at the end of the day that for most of the controversial issues, um, people are voting and thinking about the next election. And, um, and that's what makes yeah. it sometimes to come up with ultimately good policy um, because policy um, is something that transcends hopefully politics, but these days that seems to be uh, maybe a, something that happened historically, but not today. So yeah. let me- Wishful, wishful thinking wishful is the thinking. way I would describe that. Right. So um, I'm going to pick up another point uh, in, in a moment, but I just want to mention that you're, you're on some pretty important and influential committees, not that all committees don't have an important role to play in the process, but committees are where um, legislation originates um, and where issues are ironed out and, and then it goes or doesn't go to the floor um, with um, you know, some input that's already been had at the committee level. So you're on, um, you mentioned before we went on air that you're the youngest member of the rules committee, which if it's anything like, and I'm sure it is like the rules committee and the US Congress, it's a very important committee. It sounds like it's ministerial and administrative and to some extent it is, but it's, it's fundamentally lays out what's going to be heard and when and so on and so forth. In addition, um, you're on the healthcare rules committee, I believe. But the healthcare committee. Healthcare, so that's I'm sorry. <clears throat> yes, uh, reading from my notes, mm -hmm. rules redistricting, um, transportation, education mm -hmm. appropriations. Mm -hmm. So I wanna just check on, on one thing. You know, we had the abortion bill passed um, by a supermajority, I mean, supermajority and then 
they overrode the governor's, Governor Cooper's expected veto. But if I'm not mistaken, I believe that one of the things that people were uh, concerned about other than the ultimate outcome was it seemed to come about in somewhat of a clandestine manner, which is to say there wasn't much notice that it was happening when it was happening. The persons who were primarily responsible for moving it from um, where it needed to be to the floor were pro-life, so to speak, um, and anti-abortion, which is another way of saying that. And there seemed, again, from the media reporting, uh, little to no press coverage in advance and not even um, participation by experts. And you and I talked, uh, again, when we were trying to arrange for this interview that um, there were a lot of experts around who were very vocal, including some OBGYNs and others from Duke who had some very strong concerns and misgivings about this. And I thought to myself, well, where were they when this legislation was crafted? So let me stop and speak on that. Yeah, so the normal process of any bill, of course, is that it's introduced. Um, if if the leadership decides that that bill is going to move forward, it goes to a committee. There's a hearing in committee. There's a chance to ask questions, a chance to offer amendments. The public can speak. Um, and then from there, it goes, uh, as you mentioned, to the rules committee and then from there to the floor for a vote. And all of that can take weeks um, and sometimes months uh, as the bill gets refined and as people are on. Um, working with the bill sponsors to craft amendments. And, you know, there's a lot, frankly, most of the work that happens on any given bill happens behind the scenes. Um, So the, the, and then of course the bill goes to the other chamber where it starts that process all over again. So there's always, for most bills, there's kind of two bites at the apple. Um, And then sometimes there's even a third bite at the apple if the House and Senate adopt different versions of the same bill, then it goes to a conference committee where those differences get worked out. And that's, so that's yet, that's, that's your third bite. Um, this bill uh, took a very different path. So what they did was they took a bill that had already passed the Senate and the House in different versions. So it was already in that conference committee and they uh, did a, a gut and replace. So they stripped all the language or, mo- well, They actually, it's interesting, they actually kept the language of that original bill, but they added in all of the abortion uh, stuff, as well as a handful of good things. Um, But when a bill comes out of a conference committee, at that point, it's not a bill anymore, it's called a conference report. And that goes to um, each chamber for an up or down vote. There are no opportunities for amendments. Those don't even go through rules. Um, There's no opportunity for public comment. They just go straight to the floor for an up or down vote. Um, And that's what happened with this bill. So the just the timeline to to remind folks or tell them if they don't know, the bill was announced, uh, I believe, at nine o'clock was was about seven o'clock on, I believe, a Tuesday night. Um, we had a joint, a very unusual joint rules committee on Wednesday morning at nine. Oh, the bill did not actually get filed until about 11 o'clock Tuesday night. 
So, so it was announced, general outline, but nobody actually saw the text until 11 o'clock that night. 10 hours later, there was a rules committee that did go. And again, that was unusual on the Senate side, but the House does require conference reports to go through rules. So we had a, we had a joint committee. Um, as a member of the rules committee, I got to ask questions. Um, they, they, the chair did allow for public comment, which um, again, is, is, is normal for rules committees, but so there was public comment that that committee meeting lasted, I guess, about two hours, maybe a little bit more than two hours. And then um, the bill was on the floor of the House. If I'm getting this right, may, maybe it was the next day, uh, 48 hours later, and then it came to the Senate. Um, no, no, it was on the floor of the House that afternoon, Wednesday afternoon. And then it came to the Senate uh, Thursday afternoon. So uh, it, 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 it was just, uh, it was a very, it was a very rapid, uh, and, and again, no, no chance for amendments, none of that, so. So let me just ask you, um, you know, obviously the hackneyed phrase that looking at how legislation is passed is a little like watching sausage being made, but, but this is really very different. It's just a, this is a slam dash approach. And it seems, um, I understand how they were able and they is presumably, well, not presumably, they is the proponents of the changes to the abortion law in North Carolina made by the dominant party, the party that has supermajority in the state legislature, notwithstanding the fact that according to most polls, national, state, regional, whatever, most people don't really like um, additional restrictions being laid on reproductive health, abortion, notwithstanding the fact that the Supreme Court at the federal level um, basically said there's no constitutional right to abortion, which is what a lot of folks sometimes forget. They didn't say you can't have an abortion. They didn't say that the state can't have uh, some rules, reasonable rules. They just said that don't look here don't look to the constitution, don't look to your US Supreme Court because we're just simply saying um, the earlier decisions, Roe v. Wade uh, in specific, don't apply. But what, can, what seems to be concerning is, first of all, as you indicated, there was a template, so to speak, or a conference report for bills that had been pending. Were those bills pending, if you know, prior to the Dobbs decision or no okay no so the bill the bill that this all of this language got shoved into so to speak was a bill that was introduced in January and that both again we and the house had passed and that bill was fine that bill passed I think virtually unanimously it was about the the safe surrender of infants when in the in the first few days after a child is born the mother decides I can't I can't I can't have this baby. I can't take care of this baby. So it was it, um, it was creating uh, kind of a new safe surrender program. And again, that language is still in the bill. Um, but right. But again, and I'm sure you know this. So I'm 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 not preaching anyhow. And I'm certainly not preaching to the choir. It just seems silly. Um, just be 
you know, they, in, they, 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 it was a maneuver. It, I won't even call it a loophole. It was somebody said, here's an idea. Let's just take this bill that was pre Dobbs. So these bills or both bills in the conference report and let's. Well, they weren't pre Dobbs. Okay. They weren't pre Dobbs. No, they were just they introduced. Were that okay. bill was just introduced okay. in January. Okay. But it, I'm sorry. Or February. But they didn't have the types of highly restrictive things that are in the new law, but they, they there was something there and they said, well, let's just make some, some changes, but they weren't fundamental changes. They're not, they weren't, they weren't uh, proofing errors. <laughs> they weren't, they weren't oh, no. tinkering around the edges yeah. and that then allowed because of, you know, again, some people would say procedural mumbo jumbo allowed this legislation to, to just sail through. You mentioned that there was some public comment, but the quality of the public comment depends on a couple of things. How much notice the public had in order to mount a organized public comment, how much, you know, to, to what extent were a lot of the key players who would have had already prepared information to challenge some of the more uh, restrictive measures. And if it, there was public comment, and again, you can't account for their absence, I suppose, but why, why weren't the, the experts from Duke or other medical schools teaching hospitals, either in North Carolina or, or around the country, able to say, wait a second, you're, you're not understanding about when uh, problems might arise in the course of uh, pregnancy, the issue of the ectopic pregnancy and this yeah. and that and so on and so forth. And the way in which, uh, again, post Dobbs, there are already seems to be a fair amount of data about how women's health, not to mention the health of the fetus are being jeopardized by these more restrictive bills. I mean, again, yeah. What's your sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, the, the, the drafters of the bill um, could have asked anyone for input. I, I, I have heard that they did consult with a couple of OBs, but they but those are those are interestingly OBs who are politically very conservative. And, you know, I don't know. I don't I, I don't even know how you could be an OB and not support a woman's right to an abortion. I, I just don't even know that because it is fundamental health care for women. So, um, but uh, certainly most of the OBs that, that I have spoken to and that have been at the legislature and there have been dozens and dozens of them are opposed to this bill because of the on the ground impact of it. And it's very clear that the people who drafted this bill um, don't actually understand well, whether they understand or not, it doesn't matter. They are throwing hurdles in the path um, for political reasons. Um, they are trying to reduce abortions in North Carolina. That is very clearly what they are trying to do. And one of my colleagues stood up on the Senate floor and said, we think this will save 3,000 babies a year in North Carolina at least. Um, so they are, they are, their intent is clear. They want to reduce abortion access and actual abortions in North Carolina. And they don't really care 
how they do that. They don't really care the impact on women if they, you know, in terms of how they do that. Um, they they have just, you know, and it's it's really to some degree the 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 weeks, you know, you can have an a, an abortion for any reason up to twelve weeks, and then for a couple of other exceptions up to twenty weeks, and then twenty four weeks. That 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 that's those those weeks are important. They're very important because functionally they have banned abortion after for most people after 12 weeks, whereas currently it's 20 or previously it's 20 weeks. Um, but they have put other hurdles in the path. So you you now have to have um, two in-person visits for a surgical abortion, three in-person visits for a medical abortion. Um, any abortion after 12 weeks has to happen in a hospital. I think people don't even know what that looks like. How do you like, do you just walk in to the emergency room and say, I want an abortion? Well, I mean, how, how does this happen? Does the, do the, do the physicians that you go to at a, at a Planned Parenthood clinic, for instance, have to have admitting privileges? Do you have, so, you know, it, 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 it makes it more complicated. It increases the cost, vastly increases the cost of having an abortion if you have to go to a hospital. Um, and there, and they, there are um, some inconsistencies in the bill that uh, I and others have pointed out to the Republicans, and and most importantly, on the issue of a medical abortion, which is the when you take pills, um, the mifepristone that we've heard so much about recently. So the bill both says you can have a medical abortion up to twelve weeks, and then later in the bill it seems to restrict that to ten weeks. Uh, and as I have said to my Republican colleagues. Um, every day matters now under this bill, and certainly two weeks matters a tremendous amount for women. Um, and 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 I want to say that it, again, people shouldn't think. So it's true that most abortions happen before twelve weeks. That's that is a true statement. Um, but functionally, this is uh, an eight-week ban, and if the if the medical abortion is actually only can actually only be done up to 10 weeks for that it's functionally a six week ban because it takes about a month to get an appointment at an abortion clinic. So if you don't have that appointment, if you're two appointments for the, for the first visit, the, the informational consent visit, um, and then the appointment for the actual abortion, by the time you're eight weeks pregnant, you are SOL and you're having that baby. Uh, so it is, it's not a 12 week ban. It's, it's not, it's not that simple. It's not as simple. It's not as mainstream as they want you to think. Um, it's, uh, it is functionally a, a much more limiting bill. Um, let me ask you one question. I'm not sure I'm getting Oh, can I mention one other thing sure. um, about the mythopristone? So I think, again, we've heard a lot in the in the conversations about the, the federal litigation about mythopristone, the F, challenging the FDA's approval of it, that mythopristone is not just used in abortions. It is used to help facilitate miscarriages um, later on, to induce miscarriages later on in pregnancy when there's something wrong with the child or with the pregnancy or um, a threat to the mother. So this bill would seem to eliminate the ability of physicians to use that medication at that stage of, at that later stage of pregnancy, even when it is medically required or medically recommended. Um, and that's, so again, if they had talked to physicians who actually 
serve women, <laughs> a broad range of women at all stages of pregnancy, um, they would have realized that that was a problem and they would have made some provision for that. Um, but they didn't do that. They Instead, this bill is chock full of medically unnecessary and medically inconsistent uh, provisions. And medically dangerous provisions. And so, again, I don't know how things like th this things like this in terms of things like problems like this. In other words, if you're doing legislation that has an impact on people's lives and health, and there's medical data to be had and all kinds of things uh, that need to be considered, which presumably weren't considered because they weren't necessary to the conference committee um, reports that were used as the, the foundation for these restrictive provisions, you would think that it would be <laughs> against the law, so to speak, against any concept of good government that those issues would not be vetted. But of course, that's not what the, that wasn't the, the rationale. The rationale is here's an opportunity to glom onto something, get it pushed through, um, the devil in the details can be dealt with down the line, notwithstanding the fact that women's lives and the lives of their, the fetus are jeopardized by all this. I mean, it's just a horribly bad idea. It's a, so it's just like saying, we're gonna pass some significant environmental uh, legislation, but we're not gonna talk to the people in the field that monitor yeah. this, the people that are responsible for dealing with pollution to begin with, we're just going to do that, or we're that's right, and 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 we're going to we're going to build um, a controversial highway someplace, and it's going to have massive implications for traffic and so on and so forth. But we're yeah. not going to talk to anybody. We're just going to just do it ourselves because we're part time. Not to diminish your responsibility, part time legislators. And yeah. sometimes, and sometimes full-time, you know, other times painters and school teachers. And we, and we know. Well, just, and, and again, they, what they do is they, where they get their expertise is from the lobbyists who represent the interests. And, and, you know, I've been a lobbyist. I don't, I, we couldn't do our jobs without lobbyists. Okay. Right. I'm not one of these people who beats up on lobbyists and I'm not one of these people who beats up on special interests as an environmental advocate. And as a previous environmental lobbyist, I am. I have been one of those special interests. Every issue is its own special interest, and every issue has a set of lobbyists that come with it. So, for people who like to criticize special interests, that is how our government runs. Right. Um, you know, we see hundreds and hundreds of bills, and there's no way we could possibly understand them all without the experts. The lobbyists and the clients that they represent are the experts that bring us the information we need. So, but what happens? with this majority is that they they just trust their experts and they don't actually talk to the people very often, not not always, but very often to the people on the ground who who will be most impacted and and responsible for implementation of of the bill. And the most recent example, which just got introduced a week ago, is the new I'm just going to call it a voter suppression bill um, because that's what it is. Um, you know, that clearly was drafted by lobbyists who are, um, you know, uh, proffering the, the Trump theories of election 
uh, you know, election integrity, that we need to do all of these things to protect the integrity of our elections, which, of course, are not actually, there's nothing wrong with our elections. Um, but, you know, as I have started to talk to uh, election officials who are looking at this bill and trying to figure out how on earth they're going to implement it, you know, it's like it's not implementable in the way that that it's drafted in some cases. Um, or it, it is making it, which is the intention, of course, is to make voting incredibly more difficult, to create longer lines, to disincentivize people from voting, to make absentee voting much more difficult. Because, of course, that's what Democrats have started to use more rather than Republicans. They would never have done this if pre-COVID uh, it was you know, Republicans who, were, who used absentee ballots much, much more. They would never have done any of this. But because Democrats started to use it more during COVID and post-COVID, we now, there's now a problem with absentee, uh, absentee ballots. So they, again, they're not interested in talking about the actual implementation. They're, they are primarily interested in you know, answering the calls of their base to do something about all of these issues, and they don't really care how it gets implemented on the ground. Well, now that you've um, introduced the topic of voter suppression and, um, and bills or laws that might be passed in North Carolina, let's, let's go into that a little bit more. <clears throat> um, what, what is out there right now? What has already passed? What may be passed? And yeah. Um, so we, we haven't, passed anything yet this year. Um, what they, the, the Senate, I think, passed a, a, a bill with a handful of provisions. I don't think the House had passed anything. But this bill, it's a Senate bill that sort of, it's a big omnibus um, voting bill. And it, it covers a, a lot of territory, covers a lot of ground. Um, but typ it, Typical, um, maybe I can help a little bit, yeah. uh, get my question better. Typical, it seems to me, but I've heard of in terms of legislation around the country is you do things like eliminate um, drop boxes or reduce them significantly, or you shorten the time period for which um, somebody can- Yeah, early vote and things like that. Or, yeah. you know, the, the Republicans, it would appear, seem to be on somewhat firmer ground when they talk about, well, voter ID, you need voter ID to cash a check. Why couldn't you have voter ID? But then the other question is, well, who isn't able to get it? What are the ramifications? So what, what flavors yeah. are we looking at here in North Carolina? Yeah. Um, so we, so thanks to a North Carolina Supreme Court decision, we voter ID is now the law in North Carolina. So everybody will need to show an, an ID um, in, in at, at the next election, the next primary in the next election, and actually for even municipal elections this fall. Um, and the, the, the law that the legislature passed several years ago um, details the, the kinds of ID that are um, valid for that. So voter ID is now kind of a done deal in North Carolina. Um, what this bill does, so we don't, we don't have drop boxes, so that's not an issue. Um, and this bill does not uh, purport to shorten the number of days, the hours every day, no voting on Sundays. They try. They have tried that before, and it all got shot down um, as being unconstitutional. So they didn't go there again. Um, but what they what they are they're they're taking aim at 
at two things. Number one, absentee ballots, which, as I said before, have been are mostly used by Democrats now. So they're making that process more difficult. They're requiring more information on the outside of the envelope. Um, and of course, every time you don't do something on the outside of the envelope, that brings that that gives the Board of Elections the ability to throw out your ballot. Um, I, I think most boards of elections do try to cure those ballots. They'll reach back out to the voter, give you a chance to come in and cure your ballot and fix the problem. Um, but again, there are now other, other um, increased requirements on election workers that's going to make that harder. Um, they are requiring electronic signature verification for absentee ballots, which is a huge problem. Um, a, it's, whole, it's all new software that every board of elections is going to have to have. Um, and I don't know about you, but I have about five different signatures, depending on you know, how much time I have, depending on what the document is, does it matter? And I have no idea which one of those I used when I registered to vote. I have no idea. So I don't know what the system is going to have in, in it for my signature. And if that doesn't match, they can throw it out. Um, so that's a huge problem. We will also be the only state in the country that requires two witnesses on an absentee ballot and signature verification. So we are requiring the highest level of um, affirmation and confirmation of an absentee ballot of any state in the country. So that's one thing. And what I'm just telling people, and I'll tell your listeners, don't use an absentee ballot. If you can, just go to early voting. Just vote in person. That's That, that way you don't have to deal with any of this mess and your ballot will be counted. Um, they're, they're just, and that's what they're trying to do, of course, which is ridiculous. Um, the other thing that they're doing to try to make voting more difficult is um, they are making same day. So currently during early voting, you can same day register and vote. And, and that vote counts. Now the, the Board of Elections has a process to confirm that you are who you say you are and that you live where you say you live. Um, but your vote, the, the default is your vote counts and it only gets pulled if, if, that, if the Board of Elections cannot verify by, by mailing to you um, after you vote uh, that you, in fact, live where you live. What this bill does is it changes your ballot to a provisional ballot. So it won't get counted until after the election. Um, and it, it really and, and it will only get counted if it if they think it matters. If you know, if the let me just stop because um, I'm, I'm yeah. making sure for clarity. We're talking about for any person who is not registered on the day that they intend to vote, either early voting or whatever, th this process comes into play of Correct. having to verify. Correct. So if you've, so if you've moved uh, into a new precinct, um, you can go to early voting and change your registration right there. If you're new to town, you can vote and register to vote for the first time right there in early voting. You cannot do that on election day, but you can during early voting and your vote will count. Your vote will count. Now under this bill, sorry, under this bill, if it becomes law, your vote would not count unless 
basically they need it to. <laughs> um, so if the margin in any particular election is so close that the provisional ballots might make a difference, then then they will open up those votes and and count them. But but if not, your vote won't count. Uh, and and again, there's no th this this is part of what feeds into the conspiracy, right? That people somehow register to vote during early voting and and they register improperly or illegally and they're not really supposed to vote. And, um, you know, it, it's it, last last election. My understanding is we had one hundred and ten thousand people in North Carolina do same day registration during early voting. That is a lot of people <laughs> and they want their votes to count. And again, the Board of Elections has a way and they are required to verify your address by mailing a postcard to you um, after you vote. Uh, but this, this, this just flips it on its head and says your vote doesn't count um, kind of unless, unless we need it. It also does require the Board of Elections to do that same mailing process. Um, or you can physically go to the Board of Elections and show them the same ID that you showed when you early register when you when you registered to vote, and then your ballot will be fine. But that's requiring two trips of a voter um, rather than just one. So again, they're just trying to make it more difficult. And you know who are, you know who does same day registration during early voting? Young people and a lot of people of color. So not only does the, that process sound ridiculously complicated and uh, as you say, intended to restrict voting. I would assume that it's also requires more administrative time, effort, manpower to implement it. And how would you know, for example, if and what would be what would be your co course of action if they didn't send out that postcard after the election? They just didn't get around to it, or it got sh shuffed away someplace that wasn't important. I mean, it all it all assumes that the process works like clockwork, but if there's one process that tends not to work like clockwork, it's it's voting and processing <laughs> votes. Well, I, I would disagree with you there. I think we yeah. have a very solid process for for voting, for processing ballots, for processing absentee ballots, for curing absentee ballots. Um, but they're 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 they, they are just putting additional hurdles in the way. Okay. Um, well, let me ask you, because um, you didn't mention it yet, and maybe you're going to, or is it, do we have one of those really bad voting changes that allow, regardless of the vote for somebody, Secretary of State or some other person to say, I disagree, I think, even though it looks like so and so won, this this vote no. doesn't count. We can figure this out. No, no, this bill does not do any of that. It does not, for instance, pitch the the determination of a, the validity of an election to the legislature, which we've seen in some states, maybe Arizona. I can't remember. Um, so it does not change that. It leaves the the the. Um, I can't remember what you. The, the the final sort of determination of the election, okay. the certification. Thank you um, to to the board of elections. It does not it does not change that process. And while we mentioned, since I mentioned that, what is the composition of the board of elections? 
So the board, yeah, yeah. So the board, um, the board of elections has five members. The, 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 the majority of those members, so three of those members are always the party of the governor. So in, and this is true in every, I believe in every county, um, the board of elections will be three Democrats and two Republicans. Okay. But there is a, you know, a, a nonpartisan, theoretically nonpartisan elections administrator. Um, and, uh, and I think I, I, again, the, all of these things are solving problems that don't exist, that we have not seen in North Carolina, that are not problems in North Carolina. Um, they, this bill completely plays to the, 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 the theories and uh, conspiracies around elections. And it, and it plays to that, but the intention is by restricting voting, um, some people uh, who are have more time and more sophistication and a network can work around these provisions while people who just getting them out to vote, like a student, yeah. a, a person in a rural area, a person of color, whatever, the, 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 the concept which presumably was motivating this was to restrict the voting amongst those folks who are more likely to vote Democrat. Absolutely. Okay. That, that is absolutely the case. Okay. Yes. Yes. So um, why don't we talk a bit about um, the concern that uh, some people have had about the restrictions on the power of the government governor and yeah. um, you know, the erosion, so to speak, of uh, the concept of separation of powers. When we talked, you had, uh, before the broadcast, you had reminded me that some of those, these issues concerning the limitation of governor's rights, not giving the governor too much power occurred be before the current democratic governor in the- yeah preceding governorship of uh, Governor McCrory, who was, who was a Republican. But you also indicated that we should talk on the show about how that has only accelerated and a number of other things which people might not, by their reading, yeah. construe as diminishing the power of the governor has done that. So can you talk about some of those things? Yeah, so just to remind, Little Civics 101, remind your listeners, we have three branches of government, judicial, executive, and legislative. And um, one of the themes of this legislative session is that this legislature with the super majorities are consolidating power within it and um, blurring the lines uh, and, and weakening the the weakening the checks and balances that exist between the other two branches. So I'll start first, since you mentioned it with the, the executive branch. Um, we just uh, passed a bill, and I feel sure the governor will veto it, um, a bill that removes a lot of the appointment powers that the governor has to state boards. These are boards that pass rules. Um, these are boards of agencies that pass rules that ultimately um, are responsible for implementing the laws that the legislature passed. So in our constitution, the governor is the one tasked with faithfully executing the laws that are passed by the General Assembly. Um, 
the by by eroding and removing the appointment power of the governor in many cases such and replacing it with legislative appointments it puts the legislature uh, in the role of appointing either you know in many cases an equal number or sometimes even more um, a, a people to these boards than the governor and you can't do that because that then functionally puts the legislature in charge of implementing the law uh, instead of the governor. And this theory was tested, as you mentioned, several years ago when Governor McCrory was in office. Um, the legislature did this with a number of boards and took away governor appointments and put themselves in that position to appoint those people. Governor McCrory sued and won at the North Carolina Supreme Court. It was a 6-1 decision. Uh, that that is that doing that is clearly unconstitutional. The governor must have a majority of the appointments on these boards. Well, the one person who dissented in that opinion is still on the court, and he is now the chief justice. And the court, of course, is now a majority Republican court. And the legislators who have pushed this bill have been completely transparent about the fact that they think they will get a different decision from this court that the chief justice will be able to influence his colleagues and um, they will get a decision that says this is not a problem and the legislature can have all of these appointments. So that that is, again, blurring the line between the legislative legislature and the executive and putting the legislature in charge of much more than anyone ever envisioned they would be. On the judicial side, um, that, that line is blurring as well because the, 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 the budget, the Senate's budget anyway, uh, allows for the legislature to appoint a number of new special judges that can then be appointed to hear special cases. Um, and so, and, and including cases that come directly out of the legislature. So if someone challenges a law that the legislature passes or makes a constitutional challenge against any law, it goes to a special, it goes to a special three judge panel. Um, that panel used to be appointed by a, I believe a superior court judge, I think in Wake County. Um, the new pro proposed provisions would make it so that the chief judge of the North Carolina Supreme Court, the chief justice appoints those three judge panels and they can draw from these 10 judges that the legislature has the power to appoint. So they are they are packing the court <laughs> in literally packing the court in a way that will benefit that will benefit them. Uh, and it is as an attorney, I mean, it is um, I find it uh, embarrassing. I find it shameful. Um, and 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 there's just again, there's not really. There's and not really a way to challenge it. There's no, there's no remedy. What, what you're saying, no what you're saying, um, and it's astonishing for me as an attorney or former attorney hearing you say there's nothing, there's no remedy, because I would have thought <clears throat> somewhere in the North Carolina Constitution, or perhaps if the Supreme is for the U.S. Constitution spoke to the issue, or some law that would not likely be challenged. It would deal with the issue of who has the power to to create these so-called ad hoc. Uh, I'm calling them ad hoc. Special uh, judges. Special yeah. judges. Yeah. 
uh, and and not and remove that uh, authority <clears throat> from um, the state supreme court and this and the lower courts. Yeah. And it's as you say, it's obvious if one person who can be partisan uh, has the power to delegate the authority to, um, well, let me ask you this question. Those judges that would serve in these special courts, mm -hmm. it, just to be confirmed, they're not, they're not elected. They're, no, they're not merely, elected. merely appointed. Yes. Whereas Supreme Court justices in the state of North Carolina are elected, correct? Every other judge in North Every Carolina is judge. elected. So this would be um, a special yes. monolithic <laughs> dedication of authority to the chief justice, yeah. who, it, while he is elected, is also uh, is also partisan. Yes, uh, or at least a member. Because of, yeah. because the legislature made judicial elections partisan several years ago, and they did that by passing a law that says everybody every judge will have an r or a d next to their and i believe i heard this I, I have not confirmed this but i just heard this this past week that we are the only state in the country that has partisan judicial elections that seems strange to me because this is a sort of a tried and true strategy um to get more Republican judges elected in in Republican leaning states so I, I don't know that that's true but i did hear that Okay, well, that's- It's not the norm, but we'll just let, say it that way. Let me hit one other uh, subtopic under this that we talked about um, earlier before we went on air. The, th there's a law that gives Republicans and Democrats equal control in the legislature over the state and county elections, changing what was the province of the governor to pick a majority of the election board. Do I have that correct? Oh, um, uh, I don't. I don't think of the election board. I don't think. I don't think anything changes there. That actually might be constitutional. Um, what I did mention is, and this is one of the other insidious things, uh, in terms of expanding or, I guess, consolidating power, is um, there is legislation uh, that would allow the legislature to appoint members of community college boards. Is that maybe what we were talking about? Could have been, but still go ahead on that one. Yeah, so currently um, community college boards are appointed by um, the governor, the county commission and the local school board, those three. Um, and what this bill does uh, would remove the ability of the governor to make those appointments or the local school board to make those appointments, rest, give those to the legislature. So now the legislature is appointing eight people and the county commission is appointing only four or four and the governor has none and the local school board has none. So again, solidly, squarely putting the legislature in control of every community college in the entire state. And, you know, and it's, again, we've seen this in other states. Education is, is the new front for the Republican party in terms of gaining power. They're trying, they're gaining power at Board of Elections. One of the other themes we've seen this session is um, legislators are making Board of Elect, Board of Education, I'm sorry, Boards of Education uh, partisan all across the state. Um, again, 
assuming that if you now in, in, and, in, and in most counties, that's going to be true, right? If you put the R next to the name, that's how people, it's not true here in Buncombe County, of course. Um, and in a few other counties, that wouldn't be true. But they are trying to make, they are making education a partisan issue. Um, and they're doing it all the way up. Um, not just not just school boards um, in counties, but all the way up to the community college system. And of course, they made the, they made the the board of governors for the UNC for the UNC system partisan years ago. They okay. control all of those appointments. So we just have a few minutes left with my conversation with Julie Mayfield, uh, a member of uh, the legislature in North Carolina representing District Forty Nine. Um, I guess one thing just to close out what you just said about the ability of um, the power of the legislature over community colleges and they're involved in all other aspects of education, that then translates into from policies that we're hearing about across the country and at the national level, what kind of curriculum can be taught to what extent can you talk about um, what's referred to colloquially or incorrectly as CRT? Uh, uh, what can you talk about with respect to um, uh, transgender and LGBTQ? Um, that's right. And that's how that comes into play. And so in just if you can just in a couple of minutes yeah. hit the LGBTQ and transgender issues that are most concerning to you. Sure. So like states all across the country, we've seen a whole set of um, bills around this that target the LGBT community and particularly the trans community. There are three bills that have passed at least one chamber this year. Um, the first one of those is our version of the Don't Say Gay bill that prohibits curriculum around gender or gender identity in K through fourth grade. Um, and then uh, has required disclosure requirements if a student comes to a teacher um, and says, I think I might be gay or, um, you know, I, I, I struggling with mental health issues, a uh, whole host of things. Um, so that's, that's problematic. Um, we have also banned, uh, or well, sorry, the Senate has passed a bill that would ban transgender girls from participating in girls sports. So these are boys who are transitioning to girls and the bill would not allow them to participate in girls sports. Um, and then the third is a bill banding, banning uh, gender affirming care for people under 18 that's passed the house. So none of those have been passed by both chambers. None of those are law yet. Um, none of those have gone to the governor but I would anticipate that all of those will move before the end of session. All right, well, that's a very concerning and that's an example of what you said earlier. Uh, North Carolina may not be the leader, but it's certainly the follower of a lot of other states which have waded into these waters. And it's concerning, it's not a lot of people that are affected, but the implications of it are vast. Uh, that's right. So uh, I wanna thank my guest again, uh, Julie, for being on the show, very informative. A lot we tried to cover and didn't, but a lot that you said that I think is really important for folks to know about. So thank you again yeah. for being on the show. Yeah, you're very welcome, Mark. Anytime. Okay. See you next time. Take care. Take care.